They don't have guests, they have contestants. 10 Questions with Kyle Brandt is the perfect game show and talk show hybrid that you need. Check out 10 Questions exclusively on Spotify. It's the Ringer NBA show presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find out what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 years and older. 18 and older in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is supported by State Farm. Man, I remember when I first got into a car accident, it was pure frustration because I did not have State Farm. And now that I do have State Farm, it is an exclamation of pure joy. But the only words that you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. Hello and welcome to Group Chat, the Ringer's weekly NBA group discussion where there are no untouchables except for John, the producer. I am Justin Verrier. Joining me today, it is Hoodie Charks. I am definitely touchable. I don't know. Is that <laughs> probably not a good <laughs> okay, choice of words just, there? Let's just keep going. Rob Mahoney is also here. Hey, what's going on? He is a uh, he is a true woodsman today uh, with his with his background choice. If you if you could smell just the forest as you're listening to this podcast, that's just Rob checking in from uh, from Never Never Land. Are those sequoias in the background, Rob? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you want to go true to location. You know, I'm I'm just trying to get back in touch with my natural roots. It's true. Uh, Jared Weiss of the Athletic will be joining us in just a little bit as we talk about the Celtics, the most interesting team at the trade deadline, or that's what we're going to tell you for this podcast. But first, let's talk about Marvin Bagley, who, man, this dude cannot catch a uh, break, or I guess he can catch a break in this instance. Boo. No, no. (laughs) Okay. Uh, He broke his left hand. Uh, Probably going to be out for a little while here. Not great for a guy who has already struggled to fit in with the Kings and uh, also to stay on the floor. Sharks, you wrote about this on the site today. Uh, what do you think? What are the ripple effects? Or I guess let's just talk about Bagley first. Like, how big of a setback is this for him? It's funny because that was my lead at first. Was mm. what you just? But we were like, you know, that's just oh, the too break. Cor- it's too cliche. We can't go with that. Yeah. <laughs> you're an artist. That just means you're really good at what you do. Yeah, I mean, it's really tough for him. So this is his fourth major injury in three years. And it's like, the weird thing is, it doesn't seem to be much of a pattern. I believe he had a a foot injury, a hand injury, and maybe it was an, a knee injury. Yeah, two it knee just seems injuries. Like every part of his body. And it's it's all like random things, it seems like. You break your hand, it's not really necessarily a trend. But it's he has an uphill battle anyways to establish himself in the league you know, obviously, given where he was drafted, the guys drafted behind him, and now it's just one more setback. So if he broke his shooting hand, you would assume he's out for the season, and it's really kind of puts him in a tough spot because theoretically, he could be up for an extension this offseason if he was if they wanted to give him one. It especially hurts because, at least for me, the biggest uphill battle for a guy like Bagley is so much of the awareness stuff. You know, like if you're going to play him out of position, if you're going to play him in spots where he's not going to be optimally used. He has to be able to figure out how to contribute, find spaces, find angles, and especially on defense, figure out just how to be in the right places. And when you only play for six weeks at a time and you keep getting hurt over and over, there's just no way to develop that kind of feel. Yeah, my worry is if the Kings like catch fire here uh, in the aftermath of this, that it'll be much tougher to work him back in than it already is. They had trouble just like finding the right fit for him, uh, whether or not he plays with Rashawn Holmes, whether he plays with Bielitsa, like where do you really find him to optimize him? I wonder if like 
Halliburton gets in there and they reel off a couple wins, maybe they're feeling more excited, then they're probably more prone to trade him. And all of a sudden this thing kind of snowballs downhill. I, I guess that's a good point to basically just ask, like, what do you think the Kings are going to do here? They're what, 15 and 24, I think. They're one of the worst teams in the West right now. Should they just like hit eject and just play for next season? Or do you think there's any hope that like this team can maybe rally just a little bit in the second half? I think it's not about ejecting or playing for this season. It's just about finding lineups that make sense with Halliburton and Fox. So Halliburton's been the sixth man all season. And I think the obvious move is to make him the starter because going forward, your team is built around your two-star guards. They've, they have not played that much together because Halliburton's been the second unit point guard. So now it's kind of play him and Fox together and just see what other pieces make sense. That's really the key. Like the good thing for Sacramento, they've only been playing like seven or eight guys anyways. So they're they're losing games because they have no depth. So without Bagley, they have even less depth and they're probably still going to lose games, but they can still find roles around Halliburton and Fox. And as I was doing my article today, what jumped out to me is when they play Halliburton, Fox, Heald, Barnes, Holmes, they're plus 15 in almost 200 minutes. That kind of small ball lineup has worked a lot. And it seems to make sense on paper to see what that can look like going forward. Well, especially if the reason not to play Fox and Halliburton and Buddy Heel together is that you're worried about the defense. I mean, it's already a disaster. Like, let's just let's just put our best players on the floor. And especially as you're saying, Sharks, let's put the two guys we're gonna, you know, construct the future of our franchise around to see what they so we'll see what we have in that pairing specifically and see how we can build around them. That that's the part of this that makes sense. It's just it's tough for Sacramento because they're kind of on the very edge of the teams that could plausibly talk themselves into trying to play for the play-in spots right now. They should be going into the deadline anyway, thinking, can we move on from Barnes? Like, what's the market for him? Can we move on from Bielitsa? Certainly, I think he's a guy who doesn't really want to be there from the, from the looks of it and who, you know, Luke Walton hasn't really wanted, you know, didn't want to start at the very least. So there's some tension there. He's a, a plausible trade candidate. There's a lot of players on on the Kings roster that could be on the move. And so if, I don't think this changes your thinking from that perspective, or at least it shouldn't in terms of how do we maximize the trade assets we have and how do we put these young guys in the best positions to succeed. And that goes back into the fit anyways between Halliburton, Fox, and Bagley. So the number that jumped out to me, I was looking at how Halliburton and Fox play with all their key players. And when Halliburton and Fox play with Bagley, they're minus 20. When Halliburton and Fox play with Holmes, they're plus 10. It just seems pretty clear to me that those guys make more sense with smaller players who can spread the floor around them because Bagley can help them on defense anyways. So that's what you kind of want to see going forward for the rest of the season. My question is Buddy, though. So let's say they insert Hal Burton into that starting lineup. Does the three-guard lineup of Hal Burton, Fox, Heald work long-term? Because if not, I'm wondering if this is the deadline to move him because it's such a seller's market that getting a, a 3 and D wing, I wonder if you can get a pretty penny for him. Wait, are we calling Heald a 3 and D wing? Or just a 3? <laughs> <laughs> 3 and some D? 3 and moves around and gets in front of people sometimes? He's a shooter. And I mean, that's going to go for a premium on this market, regardless of what he can do on defense. I think there's some concern about his contract and whether teams want to take on that kind of money for the player that he is. But, you know, I had this thought even just watching Buddy Heald in last night's game that he's going to catch on with a really good team at some point and he's going to be a flamethrower. Like he's, he's, he's so, such a clean shooter. He's so agile. He's so flexible in terms of the kinds of shots he can get off. Once he gets on a team where there's one or two superstars, where there's an established order, where he just kind of slots in, he's going to be really good for them. You know, so, you know, again, provided they can make up for the lack of the D and the 3 and D. I think to me, I look at it like maybe if you hit a high draft pick, the goal should probably be to find a small forward to put next to Halliburton and Fox. And then that leads you to Harrison Barnes. And does he, he's still young enough. He's only 28 that he could still make sense with their young players, but he could also still fetch a premium on the trade market. And that's kind of probably the big question over the next week and a half for the Sacramento Kings is what Harrison Barnes is worth and do they trade him? Is Harrison Barnes the oldest young player in the NBA or the youngest <laughs> old player in the NBA? <laughs> he has been there forever. This is his third big contract, right? Or did he didn't really get one on the on the Warriors? This is his well, second he has rookie big contract. contract. 
Big contract with right. the Mavs. Then big with the Kings. Yeah. I would say right. youngest old player. He's always kind of been an old man in a young, young man's body. He's seen right. some things, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, we'll get into the Celtics portion of this with Jared in a little bit um, because they seem to be one of like the primary suitors for him. And he makes a lot of sense in that team considering what they need. But I mean, for the Kings, do does it make sense to move on from him at this point? It seems like based on the reporting, we should mention that they really want a lot for him. I don't know how much of that is posturing just a week out from the deadline, but... I don't know. I mean, I imagine teams are asking for a lot for any player at this point because there are just so few sellers. I think it makes sense to trade him. And some of that is, if I'm running a team and Harrison Barnes is on it, I'm not banking on him having eternal trade value. You know, he is a guy who there is interest in right now, certainly with his body type, with who he can defend, with the way he's been playing, that's a valuable player. Is that going to be true next season? I don't know. This is kind of an unprecedented year for Barnes in a lot of ways in terms of the style and the efficiency, the assertiveness with which he's driving the ball. Maybe that's all just development. Maybe this is just who he is now. Or maybe it's Harrison Barnes having a career year and you should strike when the iron's hot. I would say even if he takes a step back next next season, just in terms of positional value, it's always going to be there. You start looking at how many six foot eight guys can defend the three and the four, can space the floor, can you know move the ball? Can defect and can and can get their own shot. He has that skill set in his bag, and that skill set is hard to find. Every team needs it. If I'm the Kings, I like I want more Harrison Barnes on my team, not less. Right. Yeah. I mean, the Celtics can uh, use him right now, and a bunch of other teams could as well. Let's take a quick break, and we come back. We'll talk about the Celtics side of this and other things going on in Boston leading into the deadline. This episode is supported by State Farm. Man, I remember when I first got into a car accident, it was pure frustration because I did not have State Farm. And now that I do have State Farm, it is an exclamation of pure joy. But the only words that you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. All right, we are back, and we are now joined by Jared Weiss of The Athletic. What's up, man? I feel like saying that you're joined by me is giving me too much credit. I'm just, I'm just here. <laughs> you glommed on, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so we're talking about the Celtics. Maybe you've heard of them. They're the team in, uh, in Philly? Yes. Philly? Right. Boston. Boston. There we go. Right, right. So... Uh, let's start here. Uh, so we're, we're painting the Celtics as the most interesting team at the trade deadline, which pretty accurate, I would say. <laughs> Just not along. Um, let's start with this here. Would you consider the Celtics season thus far a disappointment? Oh, sure. Um, it depends who you ask. The fact that they're not in first place by seven games would be disappointing to half of the fan base anyway. But if they didn't go on that four game winning streak right before the all star break, I think they would have, it would have been a real panic situation, but that, that just kept the flames at bay. So right now they feel relatively stable and they feel like they're kind of building off of something, especially because Kemba Walker is starting to play decently and Marcus Smart is back. And when Marcus Smart gets back, that kind of changes a lot for them. So right now things seem to feel like they're pretty fine, but. It, this has to. Ha- they need to play at this level for the rest of the year. They need to be playing at like a six fifty seven hundred level team for the rest of the year for people to be satisfied. Otherwise, absolutely, it's a disappointment. I mean, do you think that's possible given their health, like that they're now finally healthy? Yeah, it is possible, but it's only possible. It's not likely. It's a lot of stuff has to go their way. You know, a big thing has been that. Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, while they were all-stars and they, they, they are definitely having really good years, they also have been shooting pretty poorly this year. Uh, I think it was that Houston game was the first time that they both shot over 50% in the same game since all the way back to January in that Laker game where Marcus Smart first had his calf injury. So that whole stretch without Marcus Smart, they couldn't get both of their best players to both have good nights at the same time. And if you look at all the other teams with a pair of elite stars, I mean, just look at Brooklyn, who's been playing without Durant pretty much this whole time, and Kyrie and Harden pretty much every single night are giving them great performances. And that's making up for their supporting cast, you know, also being 
maybe not nearly as deep, like kind of how the Celtics are in the same position. So the Celtics just haven't been getting that from their big stars. So it's just going to be so much easier for those guys to perform more efficiently when they actually have Smart and Kemba back and really fulfilling their role in the offense. So I, I just think that the the severe erraticism that they were experiencing for most of the season is going to smooth out a lot, and that's just going to help kind of just lower or raise the tide that's going to raise all the ships for them. The supporting cast really does seem like the big question mark. I mean, Charks, what do you think the Celtics need right now? I mean, beyond playing Time Lord more, that'd be the main thing. <laughs> Right. Do we want to we want to jump to the young guys here? Because this is definitely something that is, is in our wheelhouse. I mean, it does feel like to a certain extent they were counting on some of these young guys to really buoy just like the the bench there. And especially like after the injury started to set in, you really got expo- the, the team really got exposed as to like how green they really are. No pun intended. Um, but I mean, let's start with Time Lord because he's probably the most fascinating one. Like, is the team better off with him starting, Jared, or are you not as sold on, on the Time Lord era in Boston starting just now? Oh, literally, the last story I just published was start Time Lord. So I, I'm i all on board. And, you know, I Jarks, if you check the text receipts, because my text all got erased for some reason, I think he and I have been going back and forth on Time Lord for over a year now on his potential. And, I mean, the guy is doing everything that we thought he could be doing by his fourth season, I think, at this rate. And the fact that that's starting to come out now with just finally getting consistent playing time. Like he, he hadn't played more than 14 minutes in like five straight games up until the last three weeks of, of his entire career. He just never has had consistent time, a consistent role in a rotation and just a chance to build off of a good game. And, you know, part of that was deserved in that he was just. So mistake prone on defense. I don't think any center in the NBA was taking as bad angles, manning the pivot as he was. I mean, the guy would just get blown by like seven times a game. Um, you know, I, I, like if a baby looked up at the sky, he would jump. It's like the guy bites on every single semblance of an up fake that's ever existed. And now that he's playing more consistently, I think he's feeling less pressure to make those big plays. And it's actually just starting to kind of smooth out the rough edges on his game so that he can kind of just focus on doing the normal stuff. And then the brilliant plays are going to happen organically over the course of the game. Yeah. I was going to say the thing that jumped out to me, there was a game against the Pelicans a few weeks ago and he blocked Zion Williamson and Brandon Ingram on -on one-on-one plays. And it's like, how many centers in the NBA could possibly do that? So that game was the best game of his career up to that point. And I was trying to kind of warn people I know you just saw this game on national TV and Doris Burke is talking about him like he's the next to Kebe Batumbo, but <laughs> just be careful because that was literally the best game of his career. We need to see more of it, but I think we've seen between like the last game against Houston, which is like he was going to get just against Justin Patton. So I'm pretty sure most of us could put up a double double in that game. Uh, you know, like that, that's not like the best example of him playing elite competition, but it was another example of him having a, an elite game. And I think he's put it together enough of these now that the Celtics need to act at the deadline as if they're betting on him being their main center. Yeah, I mean, he's got to be one of the key figures here, I think, for Boston, what, one way or the other. It's either he is the the starter at center, he is the guy who allows you to move a Tristan Thompson or a Daniel Tice if you want to explore those options, or if you want to get really ambitious, he's you know an attractive trade piece. I think by far the most attractive of their young players that they have to offer. To me, he's kind of at the center of a lot of different intersections when we talk about the possibilities of what Boston could be doing. I say he just slowed down. He's, he's, he's working himself into a trade here. So he has to be careful. <laughs> well, it's interesting that they've been connected to so many big men. Like, you know, the Vucevic gets thrown out here a lot and a couple other guys. But it seems like they're just almost stocked with bigs. And I wonder, like, especially with Smart back in there, you almost have more reason to go with the solo bigs and kind of scratch the the two big starting lineup that they've been going with. Like, it's so weird to me. Like, is the team at its best with you know Kemba, Jalen, Tatum, Smart, and Time Lord? Is that like their best lineup right now? Yep, absolutely. And there's going to be a lot of nights where Daniel Tice is the guy because Tice is a, is a he's a really good stretch big. 
uh, you know, even though he's certainly limited with his physical, you know, physicality and there's certain matchups that they're just going to bowl him over. But for the most part, he really works as that stretch big. And that's the one thing that Rob Williams can't do. However, Rob Williams as a verticality spacer, just a lob threat going through the middle. It's pretty clear now that that is really blowing up defenses and you're going to, it's not going to, it's not going to impact the defense on a play by play basis as consistently as tight stretching the floor. But it's also going to allow for so many big plays. And this is a team full of players that can make big plays. So if you kind of balance that out, you can get enough big plays throughout a run that you're still going to be on top. So, yeah, I think that's the lineup there. And as far as them targeting bigs, I mean, frankly, a lot of that is, I think, noise coming from outside of, of Boston, frankly. But I do know that they have been aggressively pursuing Vucevic. And that's a matter of that they have a bunch of good centers, but they don't have any great centers. And they have, if Kemba Walker is fully healthy, if Marcus Smart is fully healthy, they have all-star to borderline all-star caliber players at every single position except for the five. So they could either have really good depth or they could just have five basically all-star caliber players in their lineup. And that's kind of what they need to do if they're going to take down all these super teams around the league. Jared, it seems like Boston has had kind of a, a mercenary mindset to the five over the last couple of years in terms of how they're spending money, how they're dedicating their resources. You mentioned, you know, pursuing Vooch, which to me signals a, a kind of sea change or at least an interest in a particular kind of player. Do you think their thinking around that position has shifted at all? Or is that just a matter of this guy may or may not be available at the right time and he's clearly very talented and he fits our team? That's a great question because... The middle ground is Miles Turner, who's making almost half of what Vooch is making, and is probably half as good as Vucevic, even though he's obviously a different type of player. Actually, maybe not that different, but uh, they didn't want him. A lot of it because they just felt that they'd rather either go sub MLE on their center or go max on their center. That there's just there's not there's not much room in between value wise there, and so. They've been cheaping out on the center position and emphasizing the wing position for a long time now, which is, I mean, most around the league, they've been considered to be ahead of the curve on that. And now the curve has caught up. So they're trying to now figure out what's their next zig ahead of the curve at this point. So, hey, maybe investing in centers that are mediocre, bigger role defenders is that zig. Who knows? But so they, I mean, they've gotten, they're, they've really gotten all they needed out of Daniel Tice. And if, if Tice didn't, like improved so much last season, they would have been really screwed and they got a little bit lucky and also a shrewd move on their part to bet on him. And that worked out really well. But now that he's about to be a free agent, he's no longer, he's probably going to get 15 plus million somewhere. So he's no longer going to be a good value pick for them. And so they need to kind of decide, are we just going to invest in Rob Williams or do we need to swing for the fence at this position right now? So they're just kind of caught in that limbo, but I don't think the thinking has changed except for that, they saw how Tice, as good as he was, once they went up against Bam Adebayo, that matchup is what cost them their trip to the finals, really, in the end. The thing I don't get, you're talking about swinging for the fences and going for someone like Vucevic, is like, what is the trade back to the other team that makes sense? Even for Miles Turner at this point. Like, who are you putting in this trade? Are you putting in Smart or Kemba? Like, are you dumping all your first-round picks? How is that going to work out trade-wise? Well, well, Langford is untouchable, right? <laughs> Can we get into that for a second? Like, Charks please. and Jared, I, I, please, I, I say this with all due respect to Romeo Langford. Can someone please explain to me what the appeal <laughs> of Romeo Langford is? Is that a thing? Like, I haven't heard that yet. Is that a thing? I don't know that it's a thing so much as every time I see fake Celtics trade ideas bandied about, the linchpin of it is either an Aaron Neesmith or a Romeo Lankford. Like, I, look, I think we're putting Rob Williams in his own category among these young players. We're saying he's either a very valuable trade asset and trade piece or he's central to their future. That's kind of in his own group. All these other young guys on their roster, I just don't see a lot of ballast here to get a meaningful trade done. So, I mean, to me, it's always a matter of like how many picks are we attaching to this thing to make this worth some other team's while. But I just see a lot of stock put in Langford and Neesmith's future. And Neesmith, I can kind of understand like where he fits, what he does theoretically for you down the line. I don't think he's ready to do that for the Celtics yet, but what he could do. Langford, I, I, don't, I don't know what to make of the idea that he's supposed to be a good NBA player in the near term. I agree with you. You're totally right. Uh, he's, I mean, when we saw the brief flashes of him playing in the bubble, 
you could see that he had really improved his game a lot. A lot of the high school Romeo Langford was coming out. He was showing some nice pick and roll playmaking. He was really attacking in transition. He's a, you don't realize how good of an athlete he is until he's jumping over somebody at the rim, but he doesn't really seem like it for most of the time. So the guy's got a lot of, there's a lot of skill there. I think he's a four-year project and they keep drafting these four-year projects. And so it, they're, they're always in this tricky situation where like Terry Rogier is the perfect example. I remember in my, the first story I ever broke in my entire career when I was back at a Celtics blog was that um, they were, they were in the running for Serge Ibaka before he ended up getting traded to Toronto in like 2016. And I was told by a, a team source that they were not going to trade Terry Rogier for Serge Ibaka. And at that point, Terry Rogier like kind of sucks. He was barely getting off the bench. It was in the second season and everyone outside of Boston was like, why did they care about this guy? And of course, every single rookie, it takes them basically four years until they turn into who they are. And now obviously Terry Rozier is a really good player. So they were smart to play the long game on that one. It worked exactly as they predicted it. And that has been their MO forever. It's that we're not going to give up young assets for our short-term rental. So it makes sense that they're not going to do it for some of these guys on the market, but like Vucevic is obviously a totally different ball game. That's an all-star in his prime who's on a good contract. So I, I just think for them, you know, maybe Rob Williams is who Orlando wants. They have Mo Bamba, so it's hard to, it's really hard to tell how much they're still invested in Mo Bamba. I, I hope they are because like the guy's got a lot of potential, but I think if they're going to get Vucevic, they have to throw in three draft picks, two of their recent first draft picks on top of that. Like you have to overwhelm them and go for a, a Drew Holiday type package because there are other teams out there that have a blue chip prospect that could be a centerpiece of an all-star trade. And they have to overwhelm those offers by just mortgaging their entire future, which is totally worth it because they already have like seven first round picks on the roster right now as it is. Yeah, I think that that's an interesting like big picture question with the Celtics. And I think like in a lot of ways, Langford probably represents it. Like, do they have to go all in now? Like I heard Danny talking about like, well, maybe we don't need to use this trade uh, exception until the summer. You know, that's probably where it'll be better used. Maybe use, break it off and use a bit of it this time. Like my question, I guess, is like, aren't they fine as is? Isn't this kind of the team that they expected to be when healthy? Because I watched the Nets game, for instance, and even though they lost that game, I was like, this team is pretty good. And it struck me that like, maybe we didn't give the smart injury as much credit as, as it needed. Like if Drew Holiday gets injured, that's a fringe all-star. And you could say, well, the Bucks didn't play as well because they didn't have fringe all-star. When smart goes out, it doesn't seem like as big of a deal, but it actually was a huge deal because the team is top heavy and to play those guys uh, you know, the younger guys, it means just like putting in a lot of like worse minutes out there. So I guess a long winded way of saying like, is this team fine as is if they don't make a big deal? I would say it's more about like the big picture of it. Cause you look at their salaries, right? You got Jalen on a max contract, Tatum on a max contract, Marcus Smart will be up soon. He'll want a bigger deal. Kemba's on a max. So this like $28.5 million exception, this is their like big chance to add one more key player to their core. Otherwise, this is the team for like three or four years. They don't have much flexibility. So it's like, this is the chance to strike while the iron's hot, to finish out your core and add one more really good player. Because if you don't use it now, it's not coming back, basically. So a, a big thing is that, you know, they've been active on the trade market with Kemba Walker over the past few years, because that's obviously, you know, someone that a lot of teams are interested in and he's had a tough time in Boston. And so if he doesn't stay healthy this year, they're in a situation where they might have to try to look to, to move off of his huge salary and they might not be able to acquire talent to replace him at that point. So if that worst case scenario happens, this could be their chance to bring in a player that would essentially be what they would want to be getting back for trading away a max salary slot like that. So that's another way that they might have to approach it. But either way, it's just as simple as they had enough talent to be a championship team. They lost Gordon Hayward and they turned down a chance to get like uh, some good players in return that all it would have done was just hamper them into the tax and just take it away their flexibility, but they would have gotten good players. They passed on that. So if they're going to pass on that, they just like to not piss everyone else off. They have to get a really good player to fill that space and their window to do that ends 
this upcoming offseason. So if they don't do it by this upcoming offseason, that's basically a sign that ownership didn't want to pay the luxury tax or didn't believe in this team. And that would be infuriating to everybody that's been invested in watching them grow over the past few years. Yeah, I think we're zeroing in on some of the complication here, which is that they don't want to go into the tax right now for what Ainge called a Band-Aid solution. That makes sense. I think that's totally fair given where they are. But I don't know that they have the players and the picks to do better than a Band-Aid right now. And then the question becomes, if you stretch this out into the offseason, what has materially changed about your situation? The hard cap math changes a little bit, but in terms of what they have to deal, what they can come to the table with, I don't know that kicking that particular can down the road does them a lot of good. It's from everything that I've been told, it seems like they're convinced that there's players that they can trade for this offseason that they can't trade for now. And it's not just Bradley Beal. There's more to it. So I don't know if they have a sense that the crosstown situation is going to fall apart because obviously that would be the perfect guy for them. You know, you want a new center. How about the best offensive center out there pretty much? So they... I think that they feel that there's somebody else out there. And that's why I would just be really surprised if they made the Harrison Barnes deal, which is like pretty much sitting there for them. If they want to do it, they can throw in Neesmith, a first rounder, maybe another first rounder. They can get that done pretty easily. That deal is is there for them. So if they do that, I would be surprised. And if they do it, you know what? It's it's a safe play. And it gets you someone that isn't as good as Gordon Hayward, but is still pretty solid and is in his prime and is on a good deal. So, and he fits the exact position that they're looking to fill. So that wouldn't be the end of the world. It would just be really disappointing if after all this buildup, all this potential that you end up with the safe play. You know, what's funny about that was we were talking about the Kings in the last segment is if I'm the Kings, I don't really want what the Celtics have to offer. He's on a good contract. He's still pretty young. Like, why do I want Romeo Langford and Aaron Neesmith and like a late first round pick? for a 28-year-old wing who can defend two positions and play off Fox and Halliburton. I think that's the other part of it, too, is the better the player that you trade to the Celtics, the less valuable their picks become. And I don't know that Harrison Barnes is like moving the needle in some dramatic way, but if he's a stabilizing piece for them to fill out their rotation where you know this team just kind of needs some minutes, honestly, uh, to, to balance out some of their lineups, I don't know that I would be crazy about that pick either. The one thing that does work in Boston's favor is that they're so far back of the East teams that, and there's so many teams at the top of the West that are a few games ahead of them. It's going to be really hard for them to really jump draft pick spots. They're in this weird morass in the kind of the middle of both conferences where they can go anywhere from the 15th pick to like the 21st pick at any moment, but they're probably not going to crack like 23 or above in all likelihood, unless they, unless they're like the best team in the league for the rest of the season, which I highly doubt is going to happen, even if they bring Harrison Barnes in. But even then, 15 to 21, like that's a somewhat valuable pick, but it's not like earth shattering. You know, it's not going to change my world to get it. This episode is brought to you by Visible Wireless. Want a wireless provider that always brings its A game? Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. And as if that wasn't already a huge win, you could use promo code RINGER20 to receive $20 off your first month just for listening to us talk about basketball. Not bad, right? You don't need more than one line of wireless to save. Just switch to Visible at Visible.com and use promo code RINGER20. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash RingerMBA. Just go to Indeed.com slash RingerMBA right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So if we're talking about needle-moving players that they could realistically get at the deadline, is John Collins at the top of that list? Does Do you guys think he fits at all? And like, would you be willing to pay the price that it would probably take to like pry him away from Atlanta at this point? I find myself a little bit skeptical just because like, let's let's get this part straight. A team that just fired its coach out of urgency to make the playoffs this year 
is going to flip John Collins for Aaron Neesmith in future. Like that part of the math doesn't really make sense in terms of the Hawks motivating interests. Would he move the needle for Boston? I think he'd be great for Boston. I think he he fits a lot of what they do. I think his his the steps he's made defensively this season are really encouraging for who he could be as a playoff performer. But what's in it for Atlanta? That's the thing is you got to figure out what the trade package because obviously you know with Boston it's always. I don't even know if this is true or not, but it's the rumor is like, okay, they want to kill you in every trade, right? They don't want to give you fair value for a trade. So what are they really sending back? Will they give up two first-round picks? Will they give up Pritchard and Williams? Like, it's hard for me to imagine them putting together a package big enough to get a move, needle-moving player, really. And as far as the, like that rumor about the one to kill people every trade, the way that I've always heard of it is just that they're willing to walk away pretty easily from trades that they just that don't really wow them basically so you can perceive that if you're on the other end of that of being like oh but they're not going to work with me unless they're going to kill me in this deal but from their perspective they're thinking like we have our we have our price pretty clearly we're going to tell them what it is and if they're not interested we're just going to walk away from it but i have heard of a few instances where they've kind of like really tightened the needle or they changed something at the last second uh that definitely pissed teams off so i mean they're they're as aggressive as it gets for sure at negotiation but as far as atlanta this is a great example of how if they're going to get a deal done for a player like John Collins right now, they have to be willing to dramatically overpay. They have to be willing to throw in three first round picks, multiple, probably multiple young players on top of that. Like they have to give an offer that's so extreme that Atlanta is willing to just to lose their restricted rights on Collins and not be a player for Collins in the, in the free agency. And like people forget having a restricted free agent means that you essentially have that player and you still have full control over that situation aside from your walkaway number. Now in this year's free agency market, because the player supply is so thin relative to the market demand, Collins is probably going to get a completely undeserved max contract. And like, he clearly is not playing at that level, but he's probably going to get a deal really high. It's possible that Atlanta says, screw it. We're already committed to Clint Capella. DeAndre Hunter is probably going to be, he seems like he's maybe on his way to getting close to a max in a couple of years. So maybe they decided they don't want to do it, but I'm pretty sure Boston would be willing to do it if they are that team committed to the tax. See, that's why I'm wondering, you're talking about big picture. What about a smaller move? Like maybe like one of the other Orlando guys, like a Terrence Ross or an Evan Fournier. Does that seem more like plausible to you just in terms of, hey, we'll make a move on the edges, not give up a ton, but get a good quality player back? I think everyone on Orlando's roster except for Jonathan Isaac is probably a play for uh, for them. I think they would like any one of those guys. And Fournier is the toughest guy to pin down his value in the league because it doesn't seem like he has much value from everyone that I've talked to, but he puts up the kind of numbers and has the kind of role you would expect would cost a first-round pick or two. But it doesn't seem like anybody's interested in throwing a first after him. So we'll see if you know somebody lo- loses that game of chicken, I guess, or wins that game of chicken and actually pays that out. But Ross and Fournier are the level of player. One, they're guards, and I think that the Celtics need more shooting with wings, uh, with like big wing size that can handle defending three through five, basically. Uh, but so even if they do decide to get those guys, that's another great example with the same exact team with Serge Ibaka as another instance of just like a player that just is not of the caliber that's going to move the needle for you. That's worth getting rid of one of your young guys. Now, at the other hand, unlike four years ago, they have so many young guys. They have too many young guys. They can't even give their young guys minutes. Yeah, I think this is where Ross comes into the conversation for me is less as a trade exception candidate and more as can we cobble together enough other salary, you know, whether it's like a Tristan Thompson based deal or something like that to get it done. You know, Tristan and Neesmith and some mild draft considerations or something like that. Because if you're gonna dip into that exception, I get the or if they want to keep the exception uh with its full potency going into next offseason, cutting it in half with a Terrence Ross salary, eating into it with a Harrison Barnes salary, that stuff kind of just it defeats the point of it. And so if you can find a way to work another avenue towards some of these guys, and, and Barnes' salary is a little bit big for that, but I think Ross is right in that wheelhouse, that kind of makes sense in terms of what could actually help the Celtics right now, but doesn't fit that kind of band-aid that Ainge was talking about that's going to put them into, into a tough financial spot. So who is on our list, on the top of our list, of gettable guys who aren't at the top of the market? Is it a George Hill? Is it 
PJ Tucker and just hoping that he could learn how to shoot again? Is it LaMarcus Aldridge and learning, like hoping he could learn how to walk again? <laughs> like, like what makes sense as like a realistic, like target here? Well, we should clarify and Jared, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Celtics are hard capped this season. There's a pretty limited window here that they actually have to spend. I think someone like LaMarcus would really strain that unless they're sending out a bunch of salary, right? They're at 19.8 million by my calculation. So uh, LaMarcus Aldridge, a trade for him is, is a non-starter. There's no way in hell it's going to happen. They're going to, if, if he gets bought out, they're probably one or two in line for him because they would love to just have another stretch big. And the, I mean, the big question mark is, do they want to trade Tristan Thompson? Tristan Thompson was someone that they really wanted for postseason defensive purposes and leadership purposes. And he's been playing pretty solid for the last month or so. Now that he's been playing with a real point guard in Kemba Walker, and he's had enough time since his hamstring injury in the offseason to kind of build this game up. So he's actually been pretty solid for them. But it certainly seems with the way that Rob Williams was playing and Tice is continuing to be really good this year. He's just like the third center. And Brad Stevens, you could tell he was jumping for joy when he said it the other night. But he said after, I think it was the Houston game, we're going to be stuck with the two. We're, we're not going to be able to play all three centers anymore because we're not going to be playing double big anymore. And I'm sure that was one of the greatest moments of his entire life. And I'm sure it's one of the greatest <laughs> moments of most people's <laughs> lives. But um, that Tristan Thompson is not as necessary to the day to day rotation as bringing in a Terrence Ross or even just a PJ Tucker, assuming PJ Tucker can rem- remember how to shoot. And that's a huge question mark with a lot of these guys, a lot of these vets, like Blake Griffin, for instance. The Celtics were hard after Blake Griffin. Obviously, the Nets went after him. Blake Griffin was washed as hell this year. He was horrible this year. But every contending team is pretty convinced that he was going to be very effective for them. So I'm assuming a lot of these teams are assuming that PJ is going to be really good, that JJ Redick is going to be really good once they're in a winning situation again, and they actually give a crap. So, uh, you know, flipping Thompson for one of those guys, especially PJ Tucker, who I think brings a lot of the same leadership skills, power under the rim kind of stuff uh, to the table. That, that would certainly make sense, but they don't want to just cut bait on Thompson just to desperately find more shooting and not even just like think about like, well, why did we bring Tristan Thompson here in the first place? Yeah, can I can I ask about that Thompson contract? Because that one was always curious to me. Because if you're gonna make a bet that you shouldn't pay a lot of money on bigs, like spending the entire MLE on Tristan Thompson always struck me as really curious. Uh like was the goal there just to in part like maybe get like a middle tier contract in order to move it later, or did they really think like Tristan Thompson could solve a lot of, of our issues? Well, so the first thing that happened was, so they, they gave the MLE to Paul Millsap and Millsap said, give me a couple hours on the signing between Denver and Boston. He picked Denver in the end. Um, but they, they thought they were going to get Millsap. And so, uh, they had to pivot from there. Obviously they weren't like, Oh, who do we call now? Like they had their list. And Serge Ibaka was, I think the other guy on the list. He was the guy that I thought should have been their top target. And obviously Ibaka wanted to go to the Clippers. Don't blame the guy at all. So I think it was just like, that was all they had left at the center spot. And then if you look at the rest of the league, there weren't really any other centers in the sub MLE tier that really made sense. And the big thing that everyone kept complaining to me about was why didn't they get a wing with the MLE? Name a wing that cost less than $10 million on the market last year. There weren't any. It was like they could have gotten David Nawaba probably. I think I'd rather have Tristan Thompson. So it was just like they they lost out on the top choices on their list for the MLE, and they had to settle for Thompson, which – you know, I think Thompson is probably worth six or seven million dollars. So if you're paying an extra couple million, not a big deal, especially because he's a very usable contract uh, at deadline time. So it actually it's probably been beneficial to the team that they overpaid for him because Marcus Smart was their only other guy in that kind of 10 to 15 million dollar range that they could use to match salaries without touching the TPE. And obviously, Marcus Smart is a little bit more value than Tr- Tristan Thompson does. You got to love the NBA when you can get paid as a matching salary, not even because you're good, just because theoretically a year from now, we might need you to construct a trade. Like that's just amazing. <laughs> I think also at Tristan, this, the shock of watching Bam just dunk on Daniel Tice and just take his soul in that game six, it probably was still reverberating <laughs> in the Celtics front office. They're like, we got to have some insurance that we don't just have that matchup happen again. And then Justin, you were talking about when you said George Hill, 
They don't talk out to me like talking about a wing who could shoot and maybe guard bigger positions. How about Trevor Ariza? Like he's still around. Does he exist? Maybe. It, do we? Are we <laughs> sure that he's alive still? <laughs> he was putting up videos of him shooting during the All Star break, so he was he was advertising his availability pretty well. That's for sure. He started for Portland last season and gave him good minutes. Like it's not crazy. I mean, he's thirty six years old, basically. Is 36-year-old Trevor Ariza really the answer to the problems here? Well, the other answer is semi Ojale, right? <laughs> it's one thing to trade for a rental. It's another thing to trade for a guy who's literally going to retire once he's done with the season. So, yeah, I think they probably won't go for him. And, and that you're, to your point, I think they'd rather have Ojale. Ojale's been shooting like 37% from three. He's a decent defender. He's got some defensive versatility. He knows the system, even if he can't do a lot in it. Uh, but he's... He's like a solid ninth, tenth man, and I don't think they really need to go after these guys necessarily. So who does that leave us with? <laughs> like, like we've gone through every name, uh, like rumored in the trade market. Like Jared, is there someone like you think makes sense that we haven't named yet? Honestly, JJ Redick is a buyout. Makes like he's like the ideal guy for them, assuming that he actually is going to shoot and not get ejected. Um, Otherwise, I, I think it's just the big swing guys. It's the big swing guys and then guys that they can fit into the Ennis Cantor TPE, which is about four and a half million or something like that. So, you know, there's anyone that's making four and a half million dollars can pretty much be traded at any time at any place in the NBA. So, you know, you take your pick from those kind of guys. You know, they have plenty of first round picks to throw out there to just try one of those guys out of a team that doesn't even have their guy on the trade block. So I think it's most likely that that's the kind of move that they end up making. And they, they save the TPE completely intact for the off season. Um, and then uh, Celtics fans just yell at me for the next six months until the <laughs> off season arrives. And then we see what happens. Yeah. I guess what I'm curious is if they make a minor move for like a seventh, eighth, ninth man, what's a realistic expectation for them for that version of this team, the rest of the season? Like winning one playoff series is that kind of the goal still? Yeah, because the uh, the three teams at the top of the East are clearly better than they are, and unless they're, even the Harrison Barnes trade wouldn't even put them, it maybe would put them like at the bottom of that tier at, at best. So, so is that is that tier the the Sixers, the Nets, and the Hornets? <laughs> <laughs> nice. So. You clearly have been following me, me on Twitter lately because uh, I'm all about the Hive. Uh, the Hornets are my favorite team to watch in the NBA. And yeah. honestly, the Hornets are my upset special if we're picking an upset special in the East. I mean, th- these guys, they're, they're when they get hot in crunch time, nobody can beat them. It's a Terry Rozier effect. <laughs> that would be pretty amazing if Rozier and Hayward played the Celtics. Like, I would be all here for that. And then Kemba playing the Hornets. That would be really fascinating. Fast that would be incredible. Series. Unfortunately, I just don't think the Celtics are going to get high enough in the seating to be able to pull that off. So more likely looking at a 4-5 Miami-Boston series. Like, how do you feel about that right now? Rematch the conference finals in the first round. Right now, I don't. it's not too concerning because Miami has been like kind of trying to find their footing and all their guys that were performing so well in the playoffs last year are still like kind of you know, finding that form, I guess. But we know that Jimmy Butler is going to have a metamorphosis whenever the playoffs start. He does it every single time. And Celtics are a little bit better equipped to handle him at this point. But it, we'll see what happens with the BAM matchup. I mean, the BAM was just so insanely dominant. And he was playing hurt. Like, imagine him not being hurt in the in that matchup. It's I just Even with Tristan Thompson there, I feel like it's not going to be enough. So... Uh, it's it's gonna it's probably gonna go the distance again, and it's probably gonna come down to whether the Celtics are just hot shooting the ball. So you'll have to forgive me, but I'm having flashbacks here to where we're saying that the Celtics probably aren't gonna make a move now because they're coveting bigger stars in the future. And while perhaps like there aren't the right players to really go after now, is there anything you can get a sense of that like? the past might inform what they do in the future? Like, are they worried at all that they'll miss certain opportunities to take advantage of this team in this window, whatever, or however big it might be in order to chase the, like the idea that maybe a Towns could come on the market in the summer. That's a great point because I think that they were, you know, they were passing on Paul George leaving Indiana and Jimmy Butler leaving Chicago, which is like 17 teams ago because they wanted to get to this point. 
they wanted to get to this point with Tatum and Brown and have that, that ideal core. And it, and that works. That bet paid off. And of course, a whole part of that calculus was that they were also going to trade for Anthony Davis. And then Anthony Davis said, haha, no way. So that really screwed things up for them. And they've been kind of trying to pivot and recover from that ever since. Not to mention, obviously, Kyrie, you know, failing the way that it did was another kind of shock that screwed everything up. So I think that them realizing how fleeting acquiring a star player is and even retaining a star player is should make them more willing to settle for the burden hand rather than the two in the bush. If I even got that metaphor, right, especially because they already have Tatum and Brown, they already have the centerpieces. They don't need to get, they don't need to get an Anthony Davis anymore. They really just need to get like a Nick Vucevic at this point. They need that. Actually, that'd be ideal. Like, I think if they get John Collins or Aaron Gordon, I think that would be great. And I think they should go for those guys. Those are the guys that they need. They need a four who can't run an offense himself. But when you have all the great offensive players around him and all he needs to do is catch the ball and shoot it or drive it, that then they can really dominate in that kind of situation. So those are the guys I think they should be going for. You know, but like, obviously I get it. If you want to hold out for Bradley Beal or another superstar like that, and you think you can put together a big three of Brown, Tatum and Beal, like, sure. Like you got to go for that, but you can't miss out on some really good turnkey opportunities in the process. So at least luckily for them, if Aaron Gordon doesn't get traded at this deadline, he's definitely going to get traded in the off season. Everything that I've been hearing is that he wants out of there. I think, uh, was it Chris Haynes? I think this morning reported that he would welcome a change of scenery. Uh, welcome a change of scenery is an understatement. I, I, I can promise you that from everything that I've heard. He, wa- he wants to move on. And so it, it's going to happen pretty soon. And I guess the Vucevic decision, this deadline is going to be the first uh, thing that the first domino that falls in that whole chain reaction of what's going to happen in Orlando. But the Celtics should be taking advantage because they can get some good talent at really lower prices than they should because Orlando is kind of on the verge of a fire sale. It all comes back to Vooch, baby. That's that's what we've uh, settled. Six degrees of Vooch out here. <laughs> um, all right. That's a good place to end it. Uh, Jared, man, thank you so much for joining us. That was great, guys. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate you, man. Uh, we can catch your work at The Athletic. Any, anything else you want to plug? The Daily Ding podcast. Uh, that's our morning show at The Athletic. You should listen to that when you're done listening to all of your favorite Ringer podcasts. And you'll hear my voice on there every once in a while. There you go. Perfect plug. All right. Thanks again to Jared. Uh, thanks to Sharks, to Rob, and to Big Kerm on production. Uh, we'll be back next week. See you then.